Well, as Carter said, uh, for the next couple weeks, we're going to be focusing on the vision that God has given us as a church. By the way, am I in the right spot? Perfect. Good, good. This is very, it's a very sort of tricky place uh, to stand. Like if I do this, no longer, that's still good? I can't, what about this? Oh, good, all right, good, you fixed it. My gosh, this guy's fixing everything. That's good. Um, anyhow, so we're going to be focusing on, on our mission as a church. And, uh, you know, we have a mission statement. I don't know if you've ever heard our mission statement as a church. We actually recently reworked our mission statement to say that we are a family of churches seeking the renewal of cities through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, we would like every single one of you to be familiar with this mission statement, to actually memorize it. It's not a hard mission statement to memorize. But why, why is it important to have a mission, mission statement? Because uh, not only it uh, informs us and it reminds us of who we are, right, but it also reminds us of our mission. So as we look into our mission for the next a couple weeks, and we ask you to participate with us so that it n doesn't become a mission uh, and a vision just uh, of the leaders of the church, of the pastors and the staff of the church, but it becomes your mission uh, as well. A a as we do that, uh, let's focus first on, on our identity, right? Because out of our identity flows our mission. And so what we're saying is that we are a family of churches. That is, that is our identity. And uh, obviously the passage and the text uh, for the next couple weeks that I've chosen to camp on is Ephesians 2 and 3. And the reason why I want us to camp on Ephesians 2 and 3, it's because, uh, you know, Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, which Ephesians is actually a, a letter written to the church in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul, uh, it, it, it was written to a church uh, in a very preeminent city of the Greco-Roman uh, back in those days. It was a large city. It was uh, uh, a touristic, touristic spot. People came to see, you know, the big temple that was in Ephesus. It was a commerce, an economic, uh, you know, city that connected Asia and Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, but, you know, as Paul planted uh, the gospel in that, in that city, uh, you read about that in Acts 19 through 22. You read of the impact that church had in their city, uh, how the gospel brought renewal to the people that lived in that large city of Ephesus. But beyond that, the ministry of that church brought renewal to the whole region. And so many of the churches that were planted in Asia Minor, in, in Sardis and Pergamum and Thyatira and some of the other cities around that, Colossae, uh, were churches that were planted out of people that were trained in Ephesus and that were sent out of Ephesus with the mission to take the gospel to places where the gospel hadn't been at. So uh, on top of that, the church in Ephesus was also a family of churches. It was not a large church where, you know, two, three, four, five thousand people congregated. Uh, but it was a family of churches spread out through the various uh, neighborhoods of the city of Ephesus. And they probably met at homes, but they were united in their identity and they were united in their mission. And I think that the reason why they were so effective is because they truly uh, learned what the Apostle Paul had told them about them. That they were the household of God is right there in verse 18. The Apostle Paul reminds them that they are the household of God. I think that this is revolutionary uh, for any church, any believer that comes to an understanding that they are a, uh, the house, they're part of the household of God, that they're part of the family of God. And that's why we're talking about, you know, who we are as a family rather than anything else, okay? 
It's revolutionary. It was revolutionary back then because uh, up until that point, the house of God, and I'm going to not use a capital G on God, but the house of God was known as buildings. It was uh, places that were built and constructed, that they were decorated so that, you know, an encounter with the deity would happen. And to come and say that now the household of God or the house of God is no longer a building made of bricks and mortars, but is now people, was, it was revolutionary. But this idea is also revolutionary to us because it explains to us our condition and it offers hope to our condition as well. So uh, as we look into that, uh, that idea that we are a family, here's how I want us to slice this passage. I want us to look at our condition, what it says about our condition, why this offers hope to our condition and, and hope to the, to, the, to the lives here in the, in the city of Miami. And then thirdly, how do our, we appropriate ourselves of that hope, okay? Condition, why it offers hope to our condition and how we appropriate ourselves of that hope. Uh, first, our condition. Right there in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says something about our condition. And then in 19, he says something else. So let's read those two verses. Uh, he goes on and, and he says, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. If he's talking about peace as something that is now a current reality in the past, uh, you have the understanding that we were not at peace with each other, that we were at odds with each other, right? And then in verse 19, he tells us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So before Jesus, this was your state. You were at odds with each other, and you were strangers and aliens. And, and, and let me explain to you how these two things fit together, okay? I don't know if you were uh, at the One Church Sunday uh, a couple weeks ago at Pinecrest, but uh, and on that Sunday, I opened up Genesis 4, uh, which is the passage that teaches us about the first homicide, where an older brother by the name of Cain kills his younger brother. You know, they both come to God and they offer these sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God. Cain's sacrifice is not accepted. Uh, Cain obviously gets angry and jealous and depressed and he ends up killing his brother. And then God summons Cain after that and he says, here's the consequence of your sin. You're cursed to wander the earth alone. Cursed to wander the earth alone. So this is what the Bible teaches us. This is a, a recurring theme in the Bible. It's present in Genesis, and it's, all, and it's going all the way through the Bible, and it comes up here again in Ephesians chapter 2, and that is that sin puts us at odds with each other and condemns us and curses us to live life alone, right? Sin condemns us to live life alone. We suffer from the syndrome of Cain, and that's why the Apostle Paul speaks of our natural state outside of Jesus as being strangers and aliens. We suffer from spiritual homelessness. We are born with that syndrome of spiritual homelessness. We're constantly looking for home, and we're always frustrated that we are not able to find home. Have you ever been homeless? I haven't. But I felt as an alien and a stranger to a culture have you ever felt as an alien and a stranger to a culture? Man, let me tell you, it's a completely disorienting feeling. 
And I was reminded of that last year. We went on a trip uh, to Greece and Turkey. They know that I'm bringing, I, they, I don't know if you know that I'm bringing this up, but I brought this up this morning at Pinecrest. Uh, but I'm going to tell it again, the story. So we were uh, on a mission to go to the, um, to the, uh, uh, to the sites of the seven churches of Revelation. And, you know, I was going to do some video shooting there for teaching. And, uh, and you know, we flew from Greece. We, it, it was uh, Beth and I and then the Tuckers. We flew from Greece to Izmir. Uh, it's a city south of Istanbul. And it's, uh, you know, it's in proximity with all the other, you know, cities that we needed to go to and drive to. Uh, so we, 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 uh, we almost lost our flight, actually. And uh, we end up landing in Izmir uh, at about midnight. I think it was about midnight. We got our cars and we were starving, right, because we had to jump into our planes. And, you know, my wife actually left her jacket behind and it was, it was a mess. And, and so we, we drive out of the airport and we're trying to find a place to eat because we're obviously we're starving. And we look at our, you know, our GPS and where our hotel is and we try to find a little commercial zone or an area where could, there could possibly be a restaurant. And we see this place, which is less than a mile away from uh, our hotel, and we decide to park there and trying to find a place to eat. So we parked there, it was probably 12.30 by then, and we get out of the cars and everybody's looking at us, right? Uh, first, because uh, when we, when we like sort of scanned the landscape, there were only men walking up and down the street that late at night. And we had two women with us and our women were not dressed appropriately according to their standards, right? I think one of them was wearing shorts. My, my wife was, so that was Melissa, it had to be Melissa. Uh, my, my, my wife was wearing jeans and ripped off jeans and all the men are looking at us and they're saying, oh, Americans. And so we walk up the strip, you know, and we're trying to find this place to eat. We're trying to gauge which is the best and safest place to eat. We sort of get pushed in into this storefront restaurant, right? And before we can, you know, even situate ourselves, the waiter's already ordering four meals for us. Four for Americans, four, you know, he's doing this. And someone, you know, shortly thereafter comes with four plates and puts it in front of us. And uh, we're like, oh, my gosh, what is this? And, you know, I'm, I'm starving. And, you know, I grew up in Brazil, and I can eat pretty much anything. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to eat that thing. And Melissa's like, um, there's sort of this meat type noodle in my plate. And I said, you know, this is a vein, actually. Uh, or, you know, <laughs> and, and she was like, really? Uh, and I said, well, just lower your head and start eating, right? Because they were all looking at us. And then the next thing we said was like, let's, let's order alcohol. Because, you know, if, if, if this if it has any bacteria, you know, all the alcohol will, will kill the bacteria. And so we said, hey, uh, wine. And, you know, the one guy asks the other guy, you know, the, the other waiter's and he says, no, no, no. And then he, a light bulb goes off on this dude's head. He walks out of the store. He goes into this convenience store, right? He comes out of it with a paper bag with a bottle in it and, 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 and pours white wine into these four paper cups and brings it up to us like that. And I was like, what's going on? This is so weird. Well, it turns out it was Ramadan. And, you know, during, <laughs> during Ramadan, they're not supposed to drink uh, alcohol nor commercialized alcohol, and so they did that. But but the worst part uh, came after that, right? And that is the worst part. Every time that you sit at a restaurant, everything is great until the bill comes. Okay, now this was a hefty bill. It was a super expensive bill. You know, our meal right was served. They're here. They're, I'm not lying. Our 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 meal was served in paper plates in a paper cup. Okay, intestines, livers, veins, whatever that was. 
and it was so expensive. And in fact, we were so troubled by it, but we couldn't do anything about it because we didn't speak the language, right? We didn't understand the culture. We were probably already at odds with their culture, already afraid. It was 12.30 at night, probably 1 o'clock at that point. And so we just had to pay it in order to leave the place. And, and we get to the restaurant, and I'm asking the concierge person whether that's normal or not. And they started laughing at me because they were like, oh, pfft. <laughs> you got scammed, right? You got scammed. You know, that's the experience that you feel when you're in a culture, you don't understand the language, you don't understand the customs, you feel completely vulnerable, right? And that is sort of what Paul is talking about here, addressing our original state. You know, to, uh, to the world in which God's created, we are naturally aliens and strangers, Right? There's this longing in our hearts for home, and we're all looking for home, and we don't seem to be able to find it. So uh, there is a quote in the cover of your bulletin by Albert Camus, who uh, was a novelist, and in his famous novel, The Fall, uh, he has a dialogue there between two of the characters uh, that go like this. Beauty is unbearable, drives us to despair, offering us for a minute the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. Ah, mon cher, for anyone who is alone without God and without a master, the weight of days is dreadful. What is he saying here? He's saying, you know, that there's moments in life that you're exposed to the beautiful. You know, like when you go on vacations to uh, these uh, exquisite places, you're like, man, I could live here, right? No, you cannot. Like, you stay there for a month. You're like, I need to go back home. I'm homesick. You can't. Or when you eat, like, this, you know, amazing dish, you're like, man, I can eat this every single day of my life. No, you can't. But you had an experience where the divine, it reminded you of this whole idea of home that you long for and that you wish for, right? And it's so frustrating, these experiences, because that's what Camus is saying, that, you know, all of a sudden, that moment evaporates. It escapes from within, you know, your fingers, right? And it just leaves you with (laughs) the weariness of common life. And that's why he says... That anyone who is alone without God and without a master, the weight of days is dreadful. And that's often, you know, what uh, millennials feel. I mean, I think, I guess you guys call yourselves millennial. Um, but there was, uh, there was an article also published uh, on Psychology Today last year that I saved up for a day such as this. Uh, that's, that's titled, Countering Sad Millennial Syndrome, right? And, and, this, is, and this is what the, uh, the writer says. He says, Um, younger adults, often dubbed millennials, have reason to be sad. They're the first generation likely to do less well than their parents. That American dream of owning a home is more likely to remain a dream. Stable, secure employment is increasingly replaced by slim benefited gigs, which every month or six require you to dive back into the job market. (laughs) Preferably with a freshly upgraded skill set. Lifelong learning used to be a luxury. Now it's a job hunting license. The trusted institutions of previous generations, university, church, and media, are now widely viewed with skepticism. Lasting love is often replaced by quick hookups. Social media may make you sad. People mainly post their brag stuff, making everyone feel like a loser. So it's not surprising that I'm seeing more clients suffering from what I call sad millennial syndrome. That explains why so many of you are job hopping, changing the groups of friends that you hang out with, 
changing your hobbies and your activities because you're longing for home. You're longing to experience that which your heart is asking for, to feel at home with a group of friends or to feel at home at work, that what you're doing is actually something meaningful. See, that's a, that's a good thing actually about millennials is that they're not so much concerned, and the article talks about this, with making more, more money, but in doing something that's meaningful and significant, and it's affecting lives for the positive. So that, that's a very good thing. But in that pursuit of finding the ideal place where life, you know, and, and, and all its questions find its answer, right? And you feel perfectly at home is utopic. It's unexistent because we suffer from spiritual homelessness. It's what some of you are experiencing right now after the result of the election. You're like, oh, for the first time in my life, right? America does not feel like home. I can't believe that I live in a country with people like these. Now, some of you felt that way for the last eight years and are now saying, now, finally, America will feel like home again. And let me tell you this. If this text is true, if what the Bible is saying is right, if this is a recurring theme in the Bible, and if that's what you believe in, you're just made, you know, mainly setting yourself up for major major disappointment, see? Because the only way you can find home, that you can experience home, is by being in a relationship with God. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And that's why I think St. Augustine got it dead right. What did he say? Our hearts are restless until it finds rest in you. Get that? And it's based off of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 90, verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generations to generations. Because home is only with the one who has created us. And the world can be chaotic and things can be falling, you know, to my left and to my right. 10,000 on one side, 100,000 on the other side, but it still feels like home when I'm in a relationship with God. And so that's why this whole idea of family not only addresses our condition of being the household of God, but it also offers hope to our condition. You know why? Because what the text tells us is that God's home has come to us. So verse 17, the first thing that we read is what? And he came. Man, I love this. And I'd only picked this up this week as I was studying the text for the second time. I try to take, carve out two days to study the text. And the second day that I was studying the text, I was like, oh, I see it. Okay. Woo. And he came. Right? And he came. And then in verse 22, we read that in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, this is fantastic, this is phenomenal, this is good news, because this, this which our heart longs for, which is to be at home, has come to us. You know, it, being in this dwelling place with God and existing in a relationship with God and having that deepest longings of our hearts met, that deepest longing of our heart met, has nothing to do with how much effort we put into it. It has nothing to do with how long we search for it. It has to do with understanding that it's all about grace, that God has decided to bring his home to us and to dwell among us. You see, if, if, if we are to understand this in the context of existing as a church family, right, 
If God's home has come to us, what this means for us, at least this is what it means for me, is that we must take God's home to people. See, the vision of our church, I don't know if you watched the video last week or if you watched the video that we put out this week online about our church vision for the next five years. Uh, It has to do with this. You know, we believe that the most effective way to minister into the city such as this, where people uh, are um, very close to the experience of being aliens and strangers and segregated in neighborhoods, is to take our home, God's dwelling place, this family, into every single neighborhood of the city. That's what it's all about. It's based off of this. But moreover, what what we learn here in this passage is, is the way in which God did it. God did it through Jesus Christ. Look, how did God's dwelling place become a reality among us? Look, verse, verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It came to us through Jesus and at a great cost, guys, at a great cost. It was not cheap for God to establish his dwelling place among us. It was not, you know, a real estate investment that he would profit from in the future, man, he had to spend all his wealth in order to do that. And we learned that in the verses that are not printed here, verses 13 through 16, which, by the way, I put it on the screen so that we can read of this great cost, of what it cost God to set his dwelling place among us, to make home among us. He says, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, blood of Christ. It cost him his blood. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, it cost his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so make in peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. See, the way in which God sets his dwelling place among us is first by reconciling us to each other. You know, what kept us from each other is, you know, we think that the world is a a worse place because of certain groups of people. And what the gospel shows us is that, you know, at the core of who we are, we're both bad because we both fall short or we all fall short of fulfilling God's perfect standard, which is the law. And so Jesus comes, right, to obey the law for us, to love our neighbor because we can't. It's not to show us how to do it, not to to be a template to us of how to love neighbors and how to love people that are different from us, but he comes because that's required of us and we can't do it, so he comes and does it for us. And he goes to the cross, and on the cross he takes upon himself our condition of spiritual homelessness. And on the cross, he becomes an alien and a stranger to his own people, to his own family, and even to the Father who he's he's one with. You know, we read that on the cross, Jesus prayed the prayer of Psalm 22, verse 1, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to Jesus' questions of why the Father was forsaken him is because he took upon himself our condition of aliens and strangers, of being spiritual homeless, because we deserve it, and he paid the penalty for our sins of what we deserve because we have rejected God's law. We have purposely alienated ourselves from God. He does all of that 
so that we can be welcomed in as children, so that we can be welcomed in as, as citizens, so that, you know, God can have a dwelling place among us. And if we are to be a church that understands, therefore, that we need to take the gospel and to take, therefore, our family to the people of our city, we must also understand that this is going to come to us at a great cost. It's going to come to us at a great cost. Because it costs Jesus a whole lot to do that. It's going to cost us the same to do that, right? It's going to cost us our time. It's going to cost us our talents. It's going to cost us our treasure. It's a lot harder to try to align a family of churches than just to build a huge church and invite a bunch of people in, a destination church, right? But whatever cost is attached to this mission, it can never be compared to what cost Jesus to bring us into the household of God, to make us family of God. It can never compare to what Jesus has done for us. See, I think that this is actually the best way to contextualize the gospel here in Miami because, like I said, this is a city of aliens and strangers. Over 50% of the people that live here are foreign-born. And some of you that were born in the United States, you feel like an alien and a stranger to this culture. People are extremely lonely here in Miami. This is one thing that I've learned in my eight years of ministry here is that people here are extremely lonely. And therefore, the best way to contextualize the gospel, see, the best way to articulate the gospel to people in our city is to say to people, look, you are an alien and a stranger, but I'm going to love you as family because I was an alien and a stranger. And God has loved me as family through Jesus Christ. What would it be like? What would be the impact of a church that says to people, I'm going to love you, my neighbor, as my family. Oh, man, that would be a huge impact. But in order for us to be aligned to this mission, which is attached to this identity that we are family, we are household of God, man, we have to appropriate ourselves of this hope. This is the hope that the people of our city are longing for. They want to belong. People want to belong. And we have it. But we can only extend it to them if we appropriate ourselves of it first. And this is actually the tension of this book. See, what Paul is doing here is what Peter was trying to do in 1 Peter 1. Is to get Christians to act from who they are. You know, he is trying to get them to become who they are. See, the, the struggle in our Christian life is because we are not becoming who we are. We are, not, we are not living that which is truest about ourselves. And that's why we are spiritually immature. The spiritually mature people are the ones who are living based on their understanding of who they are in Christ. See, because there's a lot of us here, as there were many in the church in Ephesus, that were now citizens of the family of God, right? They were citizens of, 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 of this new kingdom, as he talks about there in verse 19. But they were still living as aliens and as strangers. There are many there and today that have been made family of God, but they're still living as orphans. There are many that have been built been built as, or being built as God's dwelling place, as God's temple, 
but are still insisting in living their own spirituality by themselves, apart from others. So, how do we appropriate ourselves of this truth? The answer is here in verses 21 and 22, which is, the way we appropriate ourselves of this hope is by making Jesus our cornerstone. By making Jesus our cornerstone. What was the cornerstone? The cornerstone was the most important, the most uh, expensive there's four, the strongest and the most perfect, can I say this, the most perfect stone in a construction. Obviously, this is evoking temple language. There's a beautiful, there was a beautiful temple built in Jerusalem, and in there, there was a cornerstone, right? And what Paul is saying is the foundation for encountering God, which is why the temple was built, is all based on Jesus, the cornerstone. He is the most important. He is the perfect and the most expensive, valuable stone. And the whole structure is built around Jesus. But here's the problem, that many of us are building our lives in other cornerstones. See, for many of you, your cornerstone, even though you say that you're a Christian, you believe in what the Bible says supposedly, but the true cornerstone of your life is not Jesus. What's setting the angles by which you do everything in life, right, is this cornerstone that you have. For some of you, it's career. You know, in this article, he also talks about that, you know, the biggest fear in millennials is to end life alone. It's not, it's not to be broke but, or, or to get sick, but to end life alone. So you're in pursuit of romance. Your hope is romance. That is the cornerstone by which everything is built in your life. Everything is built around that. And if you're doing that, you know, it's as if you had a cornerstone with a bad angle. What happens if you build a building on a cornerstone that has a bad angle? The whole thing is doomed. You're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up for major disappointment. And you will never appropriate yourself of this hope that you now belong to the household of God. And you'll never be on mission because you'll be preoccupied about building your life on this crooked cornerstone. So here's the question. How do I build my life around the right cornerstone? And, and by the way, let, before I say something about that, let me tell you this. This is the reason why so many of you feel disconnected, even in churches. And you walk in here and you're like, oh, that's, that's nice. And you like, you enjoy, you know, you meet a few people, but then six months later, a month later, or I don't know, a year later, you say, ah, I just don't feel at home. I'm going to find another church where I can feel at home, right? Just like you do with your jobs, just like you do with, you know, places where you move and live, relationships, you do the same with churches. And the reason why you're doing that is because you're not building your life around Jesus or on top of Jesus. You have other cornerstones and you'll never be happy, you'll never feel at home, right? It doesn't matter the preaching, it doesn't matter the music, it doesn't matter the people, you'll never feel at home because there are other things that you're building your life around. So how do we do that? First, by calling it. You have to be honest, and you have to call that which is a false cornerstone in your life. You have to say, man, I'm giving too much time. I'm giving too much importance. That is affecting my mood all the time. It's this. You have to pinpoint, and you have to name it. If you can't do that, bring some other mature people in your life and share your story and allow them to speak into it. It'll come up. I assure you, 
I assure you. But you have to call and you have to repent. You have to say, God, I've built my life around all these false cornerstones, and I want to start building my life around you. And it begins right there. And I'm going to tell you, let me tell you, it is a struggle. There are times in our lives that we are building on Jesus as a foundation. There are other times we get distracted because we're preached that we, by our culture, that we need to, you know, give all our attention and invest all our emotions, our affections in something else. And then we start doing that and we catch ourselves doing that and we come back to Jesus, right? It's a struggle. But in order for that to keep being a reality in your life, you need two things. You, first of all, you need to give yourself unreservedly to community. Because it's only in the context of community that you can be, you can be held accountable, right? And you can give freedom to people to speak truth into your life so that Jesus keeps constantly being realigned to the things that you're doing and the longings that you have. And the second thing is, as soon as you give yourself unreservedly to community, because spirituality cannot be lived or exercised alone. See, you are, the image here is that you are bricks in a building. You are cemented together to each other, right? God does not indwell bricks. God indwells a building. And you have to make sure that you're aligned in mission with those people. It's not just for your benefit, for you to find here a sense of belonging, but it's so that others may find a sense of belonging among us. And it's only when you get that understanding of the gospel and you go through that process of identifying your false cornerstones, which we call our idols, and you repent and you return to Jesus that you're able to sing like the hymn writer writes, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. You only get that maturity, you only get that clarity once you make Jesus your cornerstone. Let's pray.